From the start we wonder if the libido knows father-mother, or rather if it makes the parents function as something entirely different, as agents of production in relation to other agents in socio-desiring production. From the point of view of libidinal investment, parents not only open to the other, they are themselves countersect and divided by the other who defamilitalizes them according to the laws of social production and desiring production, the mother herself functions as rich woman or poor woman, maid or princess, pretty girl or old lady, animal or blessed virgin, and all at once. Everything passes into the machine that causes the properly familial determinations to disintegrate. What the orphan libido invests is a field of social desire, a field of production and anti-production with its breaks and flows, where the parents are apprehended in non-parental functions and roles confronting other roles and other functions. Does this amount to saying that the parents have no unconscious role as such? Of course they have an unconscious role, but in two quite specific ways that deprive them even more of their supposed autonomy. In accordance with the distinction made by embryologists with regard to the egg between the stimulus and the organizer, parents are stimuli having an indifferent value that trigger the allocation of gradients or zones of intensity on the body without organs, it is in relation to the parents that in each case wealth or poverty will be situated, the relative richest or poorest, as empirical forms of social difference so that within this difference the parents again appear, allocated to such end. Such a zone, but under a different rubric from that of parents. And the organizer is the social field of desire, which alone designates the zones of intensity, with all the beings that populate these zones and determine their libidinal investment. Secondly, the parents as parents are terms of application that express the reduction of the social field invested by the libido to a finite aggregate of destination, where the destination finds nothing but impasses and blockages consonant with the mechanisms of psychic and social repression active in this field, Oedipus, such as Oedipus. In each of these senses, the third thesis of schizoanalysis posits the primacy of the libidinal investments of the social field over the familial investment, both in point of fact and by statute, an indifferent stimulus at the beginning, an extrinsic result at the point of arrival. The relation to the non-familial is always primary, in the form of sexuality of the field in social production, and the non-human sex in desiring production, gigantism and dwarfism. One often has the impression that families have understood the lesson of psychoanalysis only too well, even from far off or by osmosis, in the air of the times, they play at Oedipus, a sublime alibi. But behind all this, there is an economic situation, the mother reduced to housework, or to a difficult and uninteresting job on the outside, children whose future remains uncertain, the father who has had it with feeding all those mouths in short, a fundamental relation to the outside of which the psychoanalyst washes his hands, too attentive to seeing that his clients play nice games. Now the economic situation, the relation to the outside, is what the libido invests and counter-invests as sexual libido. One gets off on flows and the breaks in these flows. Let us consider for a moment the motivations that lead someone to be psychoanalyzed, it involves a situation of economic dependence that has become unbearable for desire, or full of conflicts for the investment of desire. The psychoanalyst, who says so many things about the necessity for money in the cure, remains supremely indifferent to the question of who is footing the bill. For example, 
the analysis reveals the unconscious conflicts of a woman with her husband, but the husband is paying for his wife's analysis. This isn't the only time we encounter the duality of money, as a structure of external financing and as a means of internal payment, along with the objective dissimulation that it comprises, essential to the capitalist system. But it is interesting to find this essential concealment, miniaturized, occupying a place of honor in the analyst's office. The analyst talks about Oedipus, about castration, and the phallus, about the necessity of assuming one's sex, as Freud says, the human sex, and the necessity for the woman to renounce her desire for the penis and for the man to renounce his male protest. We maintain that there is not one woman more particularly, not one child who can as such assume her or his situation in a capitalist society, precisely because the situation has nothing to do with the phallus and castration, but directly concerns an unbearable economic dependence. And the woman and the children who succeed in assuming do so only by deeders and determinations completely distinct from their being woman and their being child. Nothing to do with the phallus, but much to do with desire, with sexuality as desire. For the phallus has never been either the object or the cause of desire, but is itself the castrating apparatus, the machine for putting lack into desire, for drying up all the flows, and for making all the breaks from the outside and from the real into one and the same break with the outside, with the real. Too much always penetrates from the outside, where the analyst is concerned, too much penetrates into his office. Even the closed familial scene appears to him to be an excessive outside. He promotes the pure analytic scene, an office Oedipus and an office castration, that should be its own reality, its own proof, and that, contrary to the movement, proves itself only by not working, by being interminable. Psychoanalysis has become quite a stupefying drug, where the strangest personal dependence allows the clients to forget, during the time spent in sessions on the couch, the economic dependencies that drive them there in the first place, a bit like the way the decoding of flows entails a reinforcement of bondage. Do these psychoanalysts who are edipalizing women, children, blacks, and animals know what they are doing? We dream of entering their offices, opening the windows and saying, it smells stuffy in here some relation with the outside, if you please. For desire does not survive cut off from the outside, cut off from its economic and social investments and counter-investments. And if there is, to use Freud's terms, a purely erotic motive, it is certainly not Oedipus that harbors it, nor the phallus that actuates it, nor castration that transmits it. The erotic, the purely erotic motive pervades the social field, wherever desiring machines are agglutinated or dispersed in social machines, and where love-object choices occur at the meeting place of the two kinds of machine, following lines of escape or integration. Will Aaron leave with his flute, which is not a phallus, but a desiring machine and a process of deterritorialization? Let us suppose that we are granted everything, it will only be granted afterward. It is only afterward that the libido would invest the social field, and that it would participate in the social and the metaphysical. Which permits the preservation of the fundamental Freudian position, according to which the libido must be desexualized in order to perform such investments, but begins with Oedipus, me, father and mother, the pre-Oedipal stages relating structurally or eschatologically to the Oedipal organization. 
we have seen that this conception of the afterward implied a radical misunderstanding with regard to the nature of the actual factors. For either the libido is caught up in molecular desiring production and knows nothing of persons just as it knows nothing of the ego even the most undifferentiated ego of narcissism since its investments are already differentiated, but differentiated according to the prepersonal regime of partial objects, of singularities, of intensities, of gears and parts of machines of desire, where one would have a hard time recognizing mother or father or me, we have seen how contradictory it was to invoke the partial objects, and to make of them representatives of parental persons or the supports of familial relations, or on the other hand the libido invests persons and an ego, but is already caught up in a social production and social machines that do not merely differentiate them as familial beings, but as derivatives of the molar aggregate to which they belong under this other regime. It is indeed true that the social and the metaphysical arrive at the same time, in accordance with the two simultaneous meanings of process, as the historical process of social production and as the metaphysical process of desiring production. But they do not come afterward. Lindner's painting again asserts its presence, where the turgid little boy has already plugged a desiring machine into a social machine, short-circuiting the parents, who can only intervene as agents of production and anti-production in one case as in the other. There is only the social and the metaphysical. If something crops up afterward, it is certainly not the social and metaphysical investments of the libido, the unconscious synthesis, rather, on the contrary, it is Oedipus, narcissism, and the entire series of psychoanalytic concepts. The factors of production are always actual, and are so from the tenderest age, actual does not signify recent as opposed to infantile, but rather in action, as opposed to what is virtual and will come about under certain conditions. Oedipus is virtual and reactional. Let us consider the conditions under which Oedipus arrives, an aggregate of departure transfinite, constituted by all the objects, agents, and relations of socio-desiring production is reduced to a finite familial aggregate as an aggregate of arrival, a minimum of three terms, which one can and even must augment, but not to infinity. Such an application in fact presupposes a fourth, extrapolated, mobile term, the symbolic abstract phallus, charged with performing the folding or the correspondence, but this application effectively operates on the three persons who constitute the minimum familial constellation, or on their substitutes father, mother, child. One does not stop there, since these three terms tend to be reduced to two, either in the scene of castration where the father kills the child, or in the scene of the terrible mother where the mother kills the child or the father. Then from two we pass to one in narcissism, which in no way precedes Oedipus but is its product. That is why we speak of an Oedipal narcissistic machine, at the end of which the ego encounters its own death, as the zero term of a pure abolition that has haunted Oedipalized desire from the start, and that is identified now, at the end, as then Eidos. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0 Oedipus is a race for death. Since the 19th century, the study of mental illnesses and madness has remained the prisoner of the familial postulate and its correlates, the personological correlate and the egoi postulate, le postulate moique. We have seen, following Foucault, how 19th century psychiatry had conceived of the family as both cause and judge of the illness, 
and the closed asylum as an artificial family charged with internalizing guilt and with instituting responsibility, enveloping madness no less than its cure in a father-child relationship everywhere present. In this respect, far from breaking with psychiatry, psychoanalysis transported its requirements outside the asylum walls, and first imposed a certain free, intensive, phantasmal use of the family that seemed particularly suited to what was isolated as the neuroses. But the resistance of the psychoses on the one hand, and the necessity for taking into account a social etiology on the other hand, has led psychiatrists and psychoanalysts to redeploy under open conditions the order of an extended family, which is still believed to possess the secret of the illness as well as its cure. After the family has been internalized in Oedipus, Oedipus is externalized in the symbolic order, in the institutional order, in the community order, the sectorial order, etc. This progression contains a constant of all modern attempts at reform. And if this tendency appears in its most naive form in community psychiatry aimed at adjustment the therapeutic return to the family, to the identity of persons and the integrity of the ego, the whole works being blessed by successful castration in a sacred triangular form the same tendency in more disguised forms is at work in other trends. It is not by chance that Lacan's symbolic order has been diverted, utilized for grounding a structural Oedipus applicable to psychosis, and for extending the familial coordinates beyond their real and even imaginary domain. It is not by chance that institutional analysis has difficulty in maintaining a position against the reconstitution of artificial families where the symbolic order, embodied in the institution, reforms group Oedipuses, with all the lethal characteristics of the subjugated groups. What is more, Anti-psychiatry has sought the secret of a causality at once social and schizophrenic in the redeployed families. This is perhaps where the mystification appears most clearly, because anti-psychiatry, by certain of its aspects, was the most suited to break with the traditional familial reference. What does one see, in fact, in the American familialist studies pursued by anti-psychiatrists? Completely ordinary families are baptized as schizophrenogenic, as well as completely ordinary familial mechanisms, and an ordinary familial logic, i.e., neuroticizing at worst. In so-called schizophrenic familial monographs everyone easily recognizes his own daddy, his own mommy. For example, Battison's double impasse or double bind, where is there a father who doesn't simultaneously transmit the two contradictory injunctions let's be friends, son, I'm the best friend you've got, and watch out, Son, don't treat me like one of your buddies. There is nothing there with which to make a schizophrenic. We have seen in this sense that the double impasse in no way defined a specific schizophrenogenic mechanism, but merely characterized Oedipus in the whole of its extension. If there is a veritable impasse, a veritable contradiction, it is the one into which the researcher himself is led, when he claims to assign schizophrenogenic social mechanisms, and at the same time to discover them within the order of the family, which both social production and the schizophrenic process escape. This contradiction is perhaps especially perceptible in Lang, because he is the most revolutionary of the anti-psychiatrists. At the very moment he breaks with psychiatric practice, undertakes assigning a veritable social genesis to psychosis, and calls for a continuation of the voyage as a process and for a dissolution of the normal ego, he falls back into the worst familialist, personological, 
and egoi postulates, so that the remedies invoked are no more than a sincere corroboration among parents, a recognition of the real persons, a discovery of the true ego or self as in Martin Buber.45 even more than the hostility of traditional authorities, perhaps this is the source of the actual failure of the anti-psychiatric undertakings, of their co-option for the benefit of adaptational forms of familial psychotherapy and of community psychiatry, and of Lang's own retreat to the Orient. And is it not a contradiction on another level, but analogous, when some, attempting to hasten the teaching of Lakin, place it back on a familial and personological axis whereas Lakin assigns the cause of desire in a non-human object, heterogeneous to the person, below the minimum conditions of identity, escaping the intersubjective coordinates as well as the world of meanings. Long live the endem view, for if we follow the detailed account by the ethnologist Turner, the Endembu doctor alone has been able to treat Oedipus as an appearance, a decor, and to go back to the unconscious libidinal investments of the social field. Oedipal familialism, even and especially in its most modern forms, makes impossible the discovery of what one claims nevertheless to be searching for today, schizophrenogenic social production. In the first place, it is futile to affirm that the family expresses more profound social contradictions, for one confers on it a value as microcosm, gives it the role of a necessary relay for the transformation of social into mental alienation, what is more, one acts as if the libido did not directly invest the social contradictions as such, and in order to awaken, needed these contradictions translated according to the family code. By that very fact, one has already substituted a familial causation or expression for social production, and finds oneself back within the categories of idealist psychiatry. Whatever one stake in all of this, society is thereby justified, all that remains to contest it with our vague considerations on the sick nature of the family, or more generally still, considerations on the modern way of life. One has therefore glossed over what is essential, that society is schizophrenizing at the level of its infrastructure, its mode of production, its most precise capitalist economic circuits, and that the libido invests the social field, not in a form where it would be expressed and translated by means of a family microcosm, but in the form where it causes its non-familial breaks and flows, invested as such, to enter into the family, hence, that the familial investments are always a result of the socio-desiring libidinal investments, which alone are primary, finally, that mental alienation refers directly to these investments and is no less social than social alienation, which refers for its part to the preconscious investments of interest. Not only does one thereby fail to correctly evaluate social production in its pathogenic nature, but secondly, one also fails to understand the schizophrenic process in its relationship with the schizophrenic as a sick person. For one attempts to neuroticize everything and doubtless one thus conforms to the family's mission, which is to produce neurotics by means of its oedipalization, its system of impasses, its delegated psychic repression, without which social repression would never find docile and resigned subjects, and would not succeed in choking off the flow's lines of escape. We don't feel any need to attach the slightest importance to psychoanalysis's claim to cure neurosis, since, for it, curing consists of an infinite maintenance, an infinite resignation, an accession to desire by way of castration and of the establishment of conditions where the subject is able to spread, 
to pass the sickness to his offspring, rather than dying celibate, impotent, and masturbatory. Again, perhaps it will be discovered that the only incurable is the neurotic one's interminable psychoanalysis. It is a cause for self-congratulation when one succeeds in transforming a schizo into a paranoiac or a neurotic. Such a transformation perhaps entails many misunderstandings. For the schizo is the one who escapes all edible, familial, and personological references I'll no longer say me, I'll no longer say daddy mommy and he keeps his word. Now the question is, first, if that is what makes him ill, or if on the contrary that is the schizophrenic process, which is not an illness, not a breakdown but a breakthrough, however distressing and adventurous, breaking through the wall or the limit separating us from desiring production, causing the flows of desire to circulate. Lang's importance lies in the fact that, starting from certain intuitions that remained ambiguous in Jasper's, he was able to indicate the incredible scope of this voyage. With the result that schizoanalysis would come to nothing if it did not add to its positive tasks the constant destructive task of disintegrating the normal ego. Lawrence, Miller, and then Lang were able to demonstrate this in a profound way, it is certain that neither men nor women are clearly defined personalities, but rather vibrations, flows, schizes, and knots. The ego refers to personological coordinates from which it results, persons in their turn refer to familial coordinates, and we shall see what the familial constellation refers to in order to produce individuals in its turn. The task of schizoanalysis is that of tirelessly taking apart egos and their presuppositions, liberating the prepersonal singularities they enclose and repress, mobilizing the flows they would be capable of transmitting, receiving, or intercepting, establishing always further and more sharply the schizes and the breaks well below conditions of identity, and assembling the desiring machines that countersect everyone and group everyone with others. For everyone is a little group, ungroupuscule, and must live as such or rather, like the Zen tea box broken in a hundred places, whose every crack is repaired with cement made of gold, or like the church tile whose every fissure is accentuated by the layers of paint or lime covering it, the contrary of castration, which is unified, molarized, hidden, scarred, unproductive. Schizoanalysis is so named because throughout its entire process of treatment it schizophrenizes, instead of neuroticizing like psychoanalysis. What makes the schizophrenic ill, since the cause of the illness is not schizophrenia as a process? What transforms the breakthrough into a breakdown? It is the constrained arrest of the process, or its continuation in the void, or the way in which it is forced to take itself as a goal. We have seen in this sense how social production produced the six schizo, constructed on decoded flows that constitute its profound tendency or its absolute limit, capitalism is constantly counteracting this tendency, exorcising this limit by substituting internal relative limits for it that it can reproduce on an ever-expanding scale, or an axiomatic of flows that subjects this tendency to the harshest forms of despotism and repression. It is in this sense that contradiction installs itself not only at the level of the flows that traverse the social field, but at the level of their libidinal investments, which form the flow's constituent parts between the paranoiac reconstruction of the earth state and the positive schizophrenic lines of escape. Thereafter three possibilities emerge. First, the process is arrested, 
the limit of desiring production is displaced, travestied, and now passes over into the Oedipal subaggregate. So the schizo is effectively neuroticized, and it is this neuroticization that constitutes his illness, for in any case neuroticization precedes neurosis, the latter being the result of the former. Or, second, the schizo resists neuroticization and oedipalization. Even the use of modern resources, the pure analytic scene, the symbolic phallus, structural foreclosure and the name of the father do not succeed in taking on him. Here again, in these modern resources, what a strange use is made of Lakin's discoveries Lakin, who was the first on the contrary to schizophrenize the analytic field. In this second case the process, confronted with a neuroticization that it resists, but that suffices to block it on all sides, is led to take itself as an end, a psychotic is produced who escapes the delegated repression properly speaking only to take refuge in primal repression, closing the body without organs around itself and silencing his desiring machines. Catatonia rather than neurosis, catatonia rather than Oedipus and castration but it is still an effect of neuroticization, a counter-effect of one and the same illness. Or the third case the process sets to turning round in the void. Since it is now a process of deterritorialization it can no longer search for and create its new land. Confronted with Oedipal re-territorialization an archaic, residual, ludicrously restricted sphere it will form still more artificial lands that, barring an accident, accommodate themselves in one way or another to the established order, the pervert. After all, Oedipus was already an artificial sphere, O oh family. And the resistance to Oedipus, the return to the body without organs was still an artificial sphere, O oh asylum so that everything is perversion. But everything is psychosis and paranoia as well, since everything is set in motion by the counter-investment of the social field that produces the psychotic. Again, everything is neurosis, since it is an outcome of the neuroticization that runs counter to the process. Finally, everything is process, schizophrenia as process, since it is against schizophrenia that everything is measured, its peculiar trajectory, its neurotic arrests, its perverse continuations in the void, its psychotic finalizations. Inasmuch as Oedipus arises out of an application of the entire social field to the finite familial figure, it does not imply just any investment of this field by the libido, but a very particular investment that renders this application possible and necessary. That is why Oedipus seemed to us a paranoiac's idea before being a neurotic's feeling. In fact, the paranoiac investment consists in subordinating molecular desiring production to the molar aggregate it forms on one surface of the full body without organs, enslaving it by that very fact to a form of socius that exercises the function of a full body under determinate conditions. The paranoiac engineers masses, and is continually forming large aggregates, inventing heavy apparatuses for the regimentation and the repression of the desiring machines. Doubtless it is not hard for him to appear reasonable, by appealing to collective interests and goals, reforms to be brought about, sometimes even revolutions to be made. But madness breaks through, beneath the reformist investments, or the reactionary and fascist investments, which assume a reasonable appearance only in the light of the preconscious, and which animate the strange discourse of an organization of society. Even its language is demented. Listen to a secretary of state, a general, the boss of a firm, 
a technician. Listen to the great paranoiac din beneath the discourse of reason that speaks for others, in the name of the silent majority. The explanation is that, beneath preconscious goals and interests, a uniquely unconscious investment rises up that embraces a full body for itself, independently of all aims, and a degree of development for itself, independently of all reason, that very degree and no other, don't take another step, that very socius and no other, hands off. A disinterested love of the molar machine, a veritable enjoyment, with all the hatred it contains for those who do not submit to the molar machine, the entire libido is at stake. From the point of view of libidinal investment, it is clear that there are few differences between a reformist, a fascist, and sometimes even certain revolutionaries, who are distinguished from one another only in a preconscious fashion, but whose unconscious investments are of the same type, even when they do not adopt the same body. We can't go along with Maud Manani when she sees the first historical act of anti-psychiatry in the 1902 decision granting Judge Schreiber his liberty and responsibility, despite the recognized continuation of his delirious ideas. Point 46 There is room for doubting that the decision would have been the same if Schreiber had been schizophrenic rather than paranoiac, if he had taken himself for a black or a Jew rather than a pure Aryan, if he had not proved himself so competent in the management of his wealth and if in his delirium he had not displayed a taste for the socius of an already fascicizing libidinal investment. As machines of subjugation, the social machines give rise to incomparable loves, which are not explained by their interests, since interests derive from them instead. At the deepest level of society there is delirium, because delirium is the investment of a socius as such, beyond goals. And it is not merely the despot's body to which the paranoiac lovingly aspires, but the body of capital money as well, or a new revolutionary body, the moment it becomes a form of power and gregariousness. To be possessed by this body as well as possessing it, to engineer subjugated groups for which one becomes so many cogs and parts, to insert oneself into the machine to find there at last the enjoyment of the mechanisms that pulverize desire such as the paranoiac experience. Now Oedipus appears to be a relatively innocent thing, a private kind of thing to be treated in the analyst's office. But we ask precisely what type of unconscious social investment Oedipus presupposes, since psychoanalysis does not invent Oedipus, psychoanalysis is content to live off Oedipus, to develop and promote it, and to give it a marketable medical form. Inasmuch as the paranoiac investment enslaves desiring production, it is very important for it that the limit of this production be displaced, and that it pass to the interior of the socius, as a limit between two molar aggregates, the social aggregate of departure and the familial subaggregate of arrival that supposedly corresponds to it, in such a way that desire is caught in the trap of a familial psychic repression that comes to double the weight of social repression. The paranoiac applies his delirium to the family and to his own family but it is first of all a delirium of races, ranks, classes, and universal history. In short, Oedipus implies within the unconscious itself an entire reactionary and paranoiac investment of the social field that acts as an Oedipalizing factor, and that can fuel as well as counteract the preconscious investments. From the standpoint of schizoanalysis, the analysis of Oedipus therefore consists in tracing back from the son's confused feelings to the delirious ideas or the lines of investment of the parents, of their internalized representatives and their substitutes, 
not in order to attain the whole of a family, which is never more than a locus of application and reproduction, but in order to attain the social and political units of libidinal investment. With the result that all familialist psychoanalysis with the psychoanalyst at the fore warrants a schizoanalysis. Only one way to spend time on the couch, schizoanalyze the psychoanalyst. We have maintained throughout that, by dint of their difference in nature with regard to the preconscious investments of interest, the unconscious investments of desire had sexuality as an index in their social scope itself. Which does not mean, of course, that one need only invest the poor woman, the maid, or the whore to have revolutionary loves. There are no revolutionary or reactionary loves, which is to say that loves are not defined by their objects, any more than by the sources and aims of the desires and the drives. But there are forms of love that are the indices of the reactionary or the revolutionary character of the investment made by the libido of a socio-historical or geographic field, from which the loved and desired beings receive their definition. Oedipus is one of these forms, the index of a reactionary investment. And the well-defined figures, the well-identified roles, the clearly distinct persons, in short the image models of which Lawrence spoke mother, fiancé, mistress, wife, saint, or whore, princess and maid, rich woman, and poor woman are dependents of Oedipus, even in their reversals and their substitutions. The very form of these images, their configurations, and the whole of their possible relations are the product of a code, or of a social axiomatic to which the libido addresses itself through them. Persons are simulacra derived from a social aggregate whose code is unconsciously invested for itself. That is why love and desire exhibit reactionary, or else revolutionary, indices, the latter emerge on the contrary as non-figurative indices, where persons give way to decoded flows of desire, to lines of vibration, and where the cross-sections of images give way to schizes that constitute singular points, point signs with several dimensions causing flows to circulate rather than cancelling them. Non-figurative loves, indices of a revolutionary investment of the social field, and which are neither edible nor pre-edible since it all amounts to the same thing, but innocently anoedible, and which give the revolutionary the right to say, Oedipus. Never heard of it. Undoing the form of persons and the ego, not in behalf of a pre-edible undifferentiated, but in behalf of anoedipal lines of singularities, the desiring machines. For there is indeed a sexual revolution, which does not concern objects, aims, or sources, but only machinic forms or indices. The fourth and final thesis of schizoanalysis is therefore the distinction between two poles of social libidinal investment, the paranoiac, reactionary, and fascicizing pole, and the schizoid revolutionary pole. Once again, we see no objection to the use of terms inherited from psychiatry for characterizing social investments of the unconscious, insofar as these terms cease to have a familial connotation that would make them into simple projections, and from the moment delirium is recognized as having a primary social content that is immediately adequate. The two poles are defined, the one by the enslavement of production and the desiring machines to the gregarious aggregates that they constitute on a large scale under a given form of power or selective sovereignty, the other by the inverse subordination and the overthrow of power. The one by these molar structured aggregates that crush singularities, select them, and regularize those that they retain in codes or axiomatics, 
the other by the molecular multiplicities of singularities that on the contrary treat the large aggregates as so many useful materials for their own elaborations. The one by the lines of integration and territorialization that arrest the flows, constrict them, turn them back, break them again according to the limits interior to the system, in such a way as to produce the images that come to fill the field of immanence peculiar to this system or this aggregate, the other by lines of escape that follow the decoded and deterritorialized flows, inventing their own non-figurative breaks or schizes that produce new flows, always breaching the coded wall or the territorialized limit that separates them from desiring production. And to summarize all the preceding determinations, the one is defined by subjugated groups, the other by subject groups. It is true that we still run up against all kinds of problems concerning these distinctions. In what sense does the schizoid investment constitute, to the same extent as the other one, a real investment of the socio-historical field, and not a simple utopia? In what sense are the lines of escape collective, positive, and creative? What is the relationship between the two unconscious poles, and what is their relationship with the preconscious investments of interest? We have seen that the unconscious paranoiac investment was grounded in the socius itself as a full body without organs, beyond the preconscious aims and interests that it assigns and distributes. The fact remains that such an investment does not endure the light of day, it must always hide under assignable aims or interests presented as the general aims and interests, even though in reality the latter represent only the members of the dominant class or a fraction of this class. How could a formation of sovereignty, a fixed and determinate gregarious aggregate, endure being invested for their brute force, their violence, and their absurdity? They would not survive such an investment. Even the most overt fascism speaks the language of goals, of law, order, and reason. Even the most insane capitalism speaks in the name of economic rationality. And this is necessarily the case, since it is in the irrationality of the full body that the order of reasons is inextricably fixed, under a code, under an axiomatic that determines it. What is more, the bringing to light of the unconscious reactionary investment as if devoid of an aim, would be enough to transform it completely, to make it pass to the other pole of the libido, i.e., to the schizo-revolutionary pole, since this action could not be accomplished without overthrowing power, without reversing subordination, without returning production itself to desire, for it is only desire that lives from having no aim. Molecular desiring production would regain its liberty to master in its turn the molar aggregate under an overturned form of power or sovereignty. That is why Klossowski, who has taken the theory of the two poles of investment the furthest, but still within the category of an active utopia, is able to write, every sovereign formation would thus have to foresee the destined moment of its disintegration. No formation of sovereignty, in order to crystallize, will ever endure this prize to conscience, for as soon as this formation becomes conscious of its imminent disintegration in the individuals who compose it, these same individuals decompose it. By way of the circuitous route of science and art, human beings have many times revolted against this fixity, this capacity notwithstanding, the gregarious impulse in and by science caused this rupture to fail. The day humans are able to behave as intentionless phenomena for every intention at the level of the human being always obeys the laws of its conservation, its continued existence on that day a new creature will declare the integrity of existence. 
science demonstrates by its very method that the means that it constantly elaborates do no more than reproduce, on the outside, an interplay of forces by themselves without aim or end whose combinations obtain such and such a result. However, no science can develop outside a constituted social grouping. In order to prevent science from calling social groups back in question, these groups take science back in hand. Integrated into the diverse industrial schemes, its autonomy appears strictly inconceivable. A conspiracy joining together art and science presupposes a rupture of all our institutions and a total upheaval of the means of production. If some conspiracy, according to Nietzsche's wish, were to use science and art in a plot v slash hose ends were no less suspect, industrial society would seem to foil this conspiracy in advance by the kind of mice and scene it offers for it, under pain of effectively suffering what this conspiracy reserves for this society, i.e., the breakup of the institutional structures that mask the society into a plurality of experimental spheres finally revealing the true face of modernity and ultimate phase that Nietzsche saw as the end result of the evolution of societies. In this perspective, art and science would then emerge as sovereign formations that Nietzsche said constituted the object of his counter-sociology art and science establishing themselves as dominant powers, on the ruins of institutions 47. Why this appeal to art and science, in a world where scientists and technicians and even artists and science and art themselves, work so closely with the established sovereignties if only because of the structures of financing. Because art, as soon as it attains its own grandeur, its own genius, creates chains of decoding and deterritorialization that serve as the foundation for desiring machines, and make them function. Take the example of the Venetian school in painting, at the same time that Venice develops the most powerful commodity capitalism, bordering an earth state, that grants it a large degree of autonomy, its painting apparently molds itself to a Byzantine code where even the colors and the lines are subordinated to a signifier that determines their hierarchy as a vertical order. But toward the middle of the 15th century, when Venetian capitalism confronts the first signs of its decline, something breaks out in this painting, what would appear to be another world opens up, and other art, where the lines are deterritorialized, the colors are decoded, and now only refer to the relations they entertain among themselves, and with one another. A horizontal or transverse organization of the canvas is born, with lines of escape or breakthrough. Christ's body is engineered on all sides and in all fashions, pulled in all directions, playing the role of a full body without organs, a locus of connection for all the machines of desire, a locus of sadomasochistic exercises where the artist's joy breaks free even homosexual Christs. Organs become direct powers of the body without organs, and emit flows on it that the myriad wounds, such as Saint Sebastian's arrows, come to cut and cut again in such a way as to produce other flows. Persons and organs cease to be coded according to hierarchized collective investments, each person, each organ has a merit all its own, and tends to its own affairs, the infant Jesus looks from one side while the Virgin Mary listens from the other, Jesus stands for all the desiring children, the Virgin stands for all the desiring women, a joyous activity of profanation extends beneath this generalized privatization. A painter such as Tintoretto paints the creation of the world like a race represented in its whole length with God himself on the sidelines, 
giving the starting signal across the track as the figures speed away in a transversal direction. Suddenly a painting by Lotto surges forth that could just as easily be from the 19th century. And of course this decoding of the flows of painting, these schizoid lines of escape that form desiring machines on the horizon, are taken up again in scraps from the old code, or else introduced into new codes, and first of all into a properly pictorial axiomatic that chokes off the escapes, closes the whole constellation to the transversal relations between lines and colors, and reduces it to archaic or new territorialities, perspective, for example. So true is it that the movement of deterritorialization can only be grasped as the reverse side of territorialities, even the residual, artificial, or factitious ones. But at least something arose whose force fractured the codes, undid the signifiers, passed under the structures, set the flows in motion, and effected breaks at the limits of desire, a breakthrough. It does not suffice to say that the 19th century is already there in the middle of the 15th, since the same would have to be said of the Byzantine code underneath which strange liberated flows were already circulating. We have seen this in the case of the painter Turner, and his most accomplished paintings that are sometimes termed incomplete, from the moment there is genius, there is something that belongs to no school, no period, something that achieves a breakthrough art as a process without goal, but that attains completion as such. The codes and their signifiers, the axiomatics and their structures, the imaginary figures that come to occupy them as well as the purely symbolic relationships that gauge them, constitute properly aesthetic molar formations that are characterized by goals, schools, and periods. They relate these aesthetic formations to greater social aggregates, finding in them a field of application, and everywhere enslave art to a great castrating machine of sovereignty. There is a pole of reactionary investment for art as well, a somber paranoiac edipal narcissistic organization. A foul use of painting, centering around a dirty little secret, even in abstract painting where the axiomatic does without figures, a style of painting whose secret essence is scatological, an edipalizing painting, even when it has broken with the holy trinity as the edipal image, a neurotic or neuroticizing painting that makes the process into a goal or an arrest, an interruption, or a continuation in the void. This style of painting flourishes today, under the usurped name of modern painting a poisonous flower and brought one of Lawrence's heroes to speak much like Henry Miller of the need to have done with pouring out one's merciful and pitiful guts, these flows of corrugated iron 48. The productive breaks projected onto the enormous unproductive cleavage of castration, the flows that have become flows of corrugated iron, the openings blocked on all sides. And perhaps this, as we have seen, is where we find the commodity value of art and literature, a paranoiac form of expression that no longer even needs to signify its reactionary libidinal investments, since these investments function on the contrary as its signifier, an edipal form of content that no longer even needs to represent Oedipus, since the structure suffices. But on the other, the schizo-revolutionary, pole, the value of art is no longer measured except in terms of the decoded and deterritorialized flows that it causes to circulate beneath a signifier reduced to silence, beneath the conditions of identity of the parameters, across a structure reduced to impotence, a writing with pneumatic, electronic, or gaseous indifferent supports, and that appears all the more difficult and intellectual to intellectuals as it is accessible to the infirm, the 
illiterate, and the schizos, embracing all that flows and counterflows, the gushings of mercy and pity knowing nothing of meanings and aims, the art taught experiment, the Burroughs experiment. It is here that art accedes to its authentic modernity, which simply consists in liberating what was present in art from its beginnings, but was hidden underneath aims and objects, even if aesthetic, and underneath recodings or axiomatics, the pure process that fulfills itself, and that never ceases to reach fulfillment as it precedes art as experimentation. And the same will be said of science, the decoded flows of knowledge are first bound in the properly scientific axiomatics, but these axiomatics express a bipolar hesitation. One of the poles is the great social axiomatic that retains from science what must be retained in terms of market needs and zones of technical innovation, the great social aggregate that makes the scientific subaggregates into so many applications that are characteristic of and that correspond to it in short, the set of methods that is not content to bring scientists back to reason but anticipates any deviance on their part, imposes a goal on them, and makes scientists and science into an agency perfectly subjugated to the formation of sovereignty, for example, the way in which non-determinism was only tolerated to a point, then ordered to make its peace with determinism. But the other pole is the schizoid pole, in whose proximity flows of knowledge schizophrenize, and not only flee across the social axiomatic, but pass beyond their own axiomatics, generating increasingly deterritorialized signs, figures schizes that are no longer either figurative or structured, and reproduce or produce an interplay of phenomena without aim or end, science as experimentation, as previously defined. In this domain as in the others, isn't there a properly libidinal conflict between a paranoiac edipalizing element of science, and a schizorevolutionary element? That very conflict that leads Lakin to say there exists a drama for the scientist. J.R. Meyer, Cantor, I will not draw up an honor roll of these dramas that sometimes lead to madness. A list that could not include itself in Oedipus, unless it were to call Oedipus in question 49. Since, in point of fact, Oedipus does not intervene in these dramas as a familial figure or even as a mental structure, its intervention is determined by an axiomatic acting as an Oedipalizing factor, resulting in a specifically scientific Oedipus. And in contrast to La Tremont's song that rises up around the paranoiac Oedipal narcissistic pole a rigorous mathematics. Arithmetic. Algebra. Geometry. Imposing Trinity. Luminous Triangle. There is another song, Zero Schizophrenic Mathematics, Uncontrollable and Mad Desiring Machines. In the capitalist formation of sovereignty the full body of capital money as the socius the great social axiomatic has replaced the territorial codes and the despotic overcodings that characterized the preceding formations, and a molar, gregarious aggregate has formed, whose mode of subjugation has no equal. We have seen on what foundations this aggregate operated, a whole field of imminence that is reproduced on an always larger scale, that is continually multiplying its axioms to suit its needs, that is filled with images and with images of images, through which desire is determined to desire its own repression, imperialism, an unprecedented decoding and deterritorialization, which institutes a combination as a system of differential relations between the decoded and deterritorialized flows, in such a way that social inscription and repression no longer even need to bear directly upon bodies and persons, 
but on the contrary precede them, axiomatic, regulation and application, a surplus value determined as a surplus value of flux, whose extortion is not brought about by a simple arithmetical difference between two quantities that are homogeneous and belong to the same code, but precisely by differential relations between heterogeneous magnitudes that are not raised to the same power. A flow of capital and a flow of labor as human surplus value in the industrial essence of capitalism, a flow of financing and a flow of payment or incomes in the monetary inscription of capitalism, a market flow and a flow of innovation as machinic surplus value in the operation of capitalism, surplus value as the first aspect of its imminence, a ruling class that is all the more ruthless as it does not place the machine in its service but is the servant of the capitalist machine, in this sense, a single class, content for its part withdrawing incomes that, however enormous, differ only arithmetically from the workers' wages income, whereas this class functions on a more profound level as creator, regulator, and guardian of the great non-appropriated, non-possessed flow, incommensurable with wages and profits, which marks at every step along the way the interior limits of capitalism, their perpetual displacement and their reproduction on an always larger scale, the movement of interior limits as the second aspect of the capitalist field of imminence, defined by the circular relationship great flux of financing reflux of incomes in wages afflux of raw profit, the effusion of anti-production within production, as the realization or the absorption of surplus value, in such a way that the military, bureaucratic, and police apparatus finds itself grounded in the economy itself, which directly produces libidinal investments for the repression of desire, anti-production as the third aspect of capitalist imminence, expressing the twofold nature of capitalism, production for production's sake, but under the conditions of capital. There is not one of these aspects not the least operation, the least industrial or financial mechanism that does not reveal the insanity of the capitalist machine and the pathological character of its rationality, not at all a false rationality, but a true rationality of this pathological state, this insanity, the machine works too, believe me. The capitalist machine does not run the risk of becoming mad, it is mad from one end to the other and from the beginning, and this is the source of its rationality. Marx's black humor, the source of capital, is his fascination with such a machine, how it came to be assembled, on what foundation of decoding and deterritorialization, how it works, always more decoded, always more deterritorialized, how its operation grows more relentless with the development of the axiomatic, the combination of the flows, how it produces the terrible single class of grey gentlemen who keep up the machine, how it does not run the risk of dying all alone, but rather of making us die by provoking to the very end investments of desire that do not even go by way of a deceptive and subjective ideology, and that lead us to cry out to the very end, long live capital in all its reality, in all its objective dissimulation. Except in ideology, there has never been a humane, liberal, paternal, etc., capitalism. Capitalism is defined by a cruelty having no parallel in the primitive system of cruelty, and by a terror having no parallel in the despotic regime of terror. Wage increases and improvements in the standard of living are realities, but realities that derive from a given supplementary axiom that capitalism is always capable of adding to its axiomatic in terms of an enlargement of its limits, 
let's create the New Deal, let's cultivate and recognize strong unions, let's promote participation, the single class, let's take a step toward Russia, which is taking so many toward us, etc. But within the enlarged reality that conditions these islands, exploitation grows constantly harsher, lack is arranged in the most scientific of ways, final solutions of the Jewish problem variety are prepared down to the last detail, and the third world is organized as an integral part of capitalism. The reproduction of the interior limits of capitalism on an always wider scale has several consequences, it permits increases and improvements of standards at the center, it displaces the harshest forms of exploitation from the center to the periphery, but also multiplies enclaves of overpopulation in the center itself, and easily tolerates the so-called socialist formations. It is not kibbutz-style socialism that troubles the Zionist state, just as it is not Russian socialism that troubles world capitalism. There is no metaphor here, the factories are prisons, they do not resemble prisons, they are prisons. Everything in the system is insane, this is because the capitalist machine thrives on decoded and deterritorialized flows, it decodes and deterritorializes them still more, but while causing them to pass into an axiomatic apparatus that combines them, and at the points of combination produces pseudocodes and artificial re-territorializations. It is in this sense that the capitalist axiomatic cannot but give rise to new territorialities and revive a new despotic er-state. The great mutant flow of capital is pure deterritorialization, but it performs an equivalent re-territorialization when converted into a reflux of means of payment. The third world is deterritorialized in relation to the center of capitalism but belongs to capitalism, being a pure peripheral territoriality of capitalism. The system teems with preconscious investments of class and of interest. And capitalists first have an interest in capitalism. A statement as commonplace as this is made for another purpose, capitalists have an interest in capitalism only through the tapping of profits that they extract from it. But no matter how large the extraction of profits, it does not define capitalism. And for what does define capitalism, for what conditions profit, theirs is an investment of desire whose nature unconscious ubitinal is altogether different, and is not simply explained by the conditioned profits, but on the contrary itself explains that a small-time capitalist, with no great profits or hopes, fully maintains the entirety of his libidinal investments, the libido investing the great flow that is not convertible as such, not appropriated as such non-possession and non-wealth, in the words of Bernard Schmidt, who among modern economists has for us the incomparable advantage of offering a delirious interpretation of an unequivocally delirious economic system, at least he goes all the way. In short, a truly unconscious libido, a disinterested love, this machine is fantastic. If one keeps in mind the tautological statement made above, one can then understand that people whose preconscious investments of interest do not, or should not, go in the direction of capitalism, can maintain an unconscious libidinal investment consonant with capitalism, or that scarcely threatens it. In the first case, they confine and localize their preconscious interest in wage increases and the improvement of the standard of living, powerful organizations represent them, which get nasty as soon as the nature of their aims is questioned, it's clear that you're not workers, you have no idea whatsoever of real struggles, let's attack profits for a better management of the system, 
vote for a clean Paris welcome. Mr. Brezhnev. And how, indeed, could one fail to find one's interest in the hole where one has sunk it, at the heart of the capitalist system? Or else, in the second case, there is truly a new investment of interest, new aims that presuppose another body than that of capital money, those exploited become conscious of their preconscious interest, and this interest is truly revolutionary a major break from the standpoint of the preconscious. But it is not enough for the libido to invest a new social body corresponding to these new aims, in order for it to perform a revolutionary break at the unconscious level with the same mode as the preconscious break. In fact, the two levels do not function in the same mode. The new socius invested by the libido as a full body can very well function as an autonomous territoriality, but one that is caught and wedged in the capitalist machine, and is localizable in the field of its market. For the great flow of mutant capital repels its limits, adds new axioms, and maintains desire within the mobile framework of its expanded limits. There can be a preconscious revolutionary break, with no real libidinal and unconscious revolutionary break. Or rather the order of things is as follows, there is first a real libidinal revolutionary break, which then shifts into the position of a simple revolutionary break with regard to aims and interests, and finally reforms a merely specific re-territoriality, a specific body on the full body of capital. Subjugated groups are continually deriving from revolutionary subject groups. One more axiom. This is no more complicated than in the case of abstract painting. Everything begins with Marx, continues on with Lenin, and ends with the refrain, Welcome, Mr. Brezhnev. Is this still a case of revolutionaries speaking to another revolutionary, or rather a village clamoring for a new prefect? And if one were to ask when it all started to go bad, how far back must we go for an answer, back to Lenin, back to Marx? So true is it that the various investments, even when opposed, can coexist with one another in complexes that are not the province of Oedipus, but that do concern the socio-historical field, its preconscious and unconscious conflicts and contradictions, about which it can only be said that they fall back on Oedipus, Marx the father, Lenin the father, Brezhnev the father. Fewer and fewer people believe in all this but it makes no difference, since capitalism is like the Christian religion, it lives precisely from a lack of belief, it does not need it a motley painting of all that has been believed. But the reverse is also true, capitalism is constantly escaping on all sides. Its productions, its art, and its science form decoded and deterritorialized flows that do not merely submit to the corresponding axiomatic, but cause some of their currents to pass through the mesh of the axiomatic, underneath the recodings and the re-territorializations. Subject groups in their turn derive from subjugated groups by way of ruptures in the latter. Capitalism is continually cutting off the circulation of flows, breaking them and deferring the break, but these same flows are continually overflowing, and intersecting one another according to schizes that turn against capitalism and slash into it. Capitalism, which is always ready to expand its interior limits, remains threatened by an exterior limit that stands a greater chance of coming to it and cleaving it from within, in proportion as the interior limits expand. That is why the lines of escape are singularly creative and positive, they constitute an investment of the social field that is no less complete, no less total than the contrary investment. 
the paranoiac and the schizoid investments are like two opposite poles of unconscious libidinal investment, one of which subordinates desiring production to the formation of sovereignty and to the gregarious aggregate that results from it, while the other brings about the inverse subordination, overthrows the established power, and subjects the gregarious aggregate to the molecular multiplicities of the productions of desire. And if it is true that delirium is coextensive with the social field, these two poles are found to coexist in every case of delirium, and fragments of schizoid revolutionary investment are found to coincide with blocks of paranoiac reactionary investment. The oscillation between the two poles is a constituent aspect of the delirium. It appears, however, that the oscillation is not equal, and that as a rule the schizoid pole is potential in relation to the actual paranoiac pole, how can we count on art and science except as potentialities, since their actuality is easily controlled by the formations of sovereignty. This results from the fact that the two poles of unconscious libidinal investment do not maintain the same relationship, nor the same form of relationship, with the preconscious investments of interest. On the one hand, in fact, the investment of interest fundamentally conceals the paranoiac investment of desire, and reinforces it as much as it conceals it, it covers over the irrational character of the paranoiac investment under an existing order of interests, of causes and means, of aims and reasons, or else the investment of interest itself gives rise to and creates those interests that rationalize the paranoiac investment, or yet again, an effectively revolutionary preconscious investment. Fully maintains a paranoiac investment at the level of the libido, to the extent that the new socius continues to subordinate the entire production of desire in the name of the higher interests of the revolution and the inevitable sequences of causality. In the other case, the preconscious interest must on the contrary discover the necessity for a different sort of investment, and must perform a kind of rupture with causality as well as a calling in question of aims and interests. In each case the problem is different, it is not enough to construct a new socius as full body, one must also pass to the other side of this social full body, where the molecular formations of desire that must master the new molar aggregate operate and are inscribed. Only by making this passage do we reach the revolutionary break and investment of the libido. This cannot be achieved except at the cost of, and by means of a rupture with, causality. Desire is an exile, desire is a desert that traverses the body without organs and makes us pass from one of its faces to the other. Never an individual exile, never a personal desert, but a collective exile and a collective desert. It is only too obvious that the destiny of the revolution is linked solely to the interest of the dominated and exploited masses. But it is the nature of this link that poses the real problem, as either a determined causal link or a different sort of connection. It is a question of knowing how a revolutionary potential is realized, in its very relationship with the exploited masses or the weakest links of a given system. Do these masses or these links act in their own place, within the order of causes and aims that promote a new socius, or are they on the contrary the place and the agent of a sudden and unexpected eruption, an eruption of desire that breaks with causes and aims and overturns the socius, revealing its other side. In the subjugated groups, desire is still defined by an order of causes and aims, and itself weaves a whole system of macroscopic relations that determine the large aggregates under a formation of sovereignty. Subject groups on the other hand have as their sole cause a rupture with causality, 
a revolutionary line of escape, and even though one can and must assign the objective factors, such as the weakest links, within causal series that made such a rupture possible, only what is of the order of desire and its eruption accounts for the reality this rupture assumes at a given moment, in a given place. Point 50. It is clear how everything can coexist and intermix, in the Leninist break, for example, when the Bolshevik group, or at least a part of this group, becomes aware of the immediate possibility of a proletarian revolution that would not follow the anticipated causal order of the relations of forces, but that would singularly precipitate things by plunging into a breach, the escape, or revolutionary defeatism. In reality, everything coexists, still hesitant preconscious investments in the case of some people who do not believe in this possibility, revolutionary preconscious investments in those who see the possibility of a new socius but maintain it in an order of molar causality that already makes of the party a new form of sovereignty, and finally unconscious revolutionary investments that perform a real rupture with causality in the order of desire. And in the same people the most varied kinds of investments can coexist at such and such a moment, the two kinds of groups can interpenetrate. This is because the two groups are like determinism and freedom in Kant's philosophy, they indeed have the same object and social production is never anything other than desiring production, and vice versa but they don't share the same law or the same regime. The actualization of a revolutionary potentiality is explained less by the preconscious state of causality in which it is nonetheless included, than by the efficacy of a libidinal break at a precise moment, a skis whose sole cause is desire which is to say the rupture with causality that forces a rewriting of history on a level with the real, and produces this strangely polyvocal moment when everything is possible. Of course the skis has been prepared by a subterranean labor of causes, aims, and interests working together, of course this order of causes runs the risk of closing and cementing the breach in the name of the new socius and its interests. Of course one can always say after the fact that history has never ceased being governed by the same laws of aggregates and large numbers. The fact remains that the skis came into existence only by means of a desire without aim or cause that charted it and sided with it. While the skis is possible without the order of causes, it becomes real only by means of something of another order, desire, the desert desire, the revolutionary investment of desire. And that is indeed what undermines capitalism, where will the revolution come from, and in what form within the exploited masses? It is like death where, when? It will be a decoded flow, a deterritorialized flow that runs too far and cuts too sharply, thereby escaping from the axiomatic of capitalism. Will it come in the person of a Castro, an Arab, a Black Panther, or a Chinaman on the horizon? A May 68, a homegrown Maoist planted like an ancho right on a factory smokestack. Always the addition of an axiom to seal off a breach that has been discovered, fascist colonels start reading Mao, we won't be fooled again, Castro has become impossible, even in relation to himself, vacuoles are isolated, ghettos created, Unions are appealed to for help, the most sinister forms of dissuasion are invented, the repression of interest is reinforced but where will the new eruption of desire come from, 51. Those who have read us this far will perhaps find many reasons for reproaching us, for believing too much in the pure potentialities of art and even of science, for denying or minimizing the role of classes and class struggle, for militating in favor of an irrationalism of desire, 
for identifying the revolutionary with the schizo, for falling into familiar, all too familiar traps. This would be a bad reading, and we don't know which is better, a bad reading or no reading at all. And in all probability there are far more serious reproaches to be made, which we haven't even thought of. As for those we have named, we hold in the first place that art and science have a revolutionary potential, and nothing more, and that this potential appears all the more as one is less and less concerned with what art and science mean, from the standpoint of a signifier or signifieds that are necessarily reserved for specialists, but that art and science cause increasingly decoded and deterritorialized flows to circulate in the socius, flows that are perceptible to everyone, which force the social axiomatic to grow ever more complicated, to become more saturated, to the point where the scientist and the artist may be determined to rejoin an objective revolutionary situation in reaction against authoritarian designs of a state that is incompetent and above all castrating by nature. For the state imposes a specifically artistic Oedipus, a specifically scientific Oedipus. Secondly, we have not at all minimized the importance of preconscious investments of class or interest, which are based in the infrastructure itself. But we attach all the more importance to them as they are the index in the infrastructure of a libidinal investment of another nature, and that can coincide as well as clash with them. Which is merely a way to pose the question, how can the revolution be betrayed? Once. It has been said that betrayals don't wait their turn, but are there from the very start, the maintenance of paranoiac unconscious investments in revolutionary groups. And if we put forward desire as a revolutionary agency, it is because we believe that capitalist society can endure many manifestations of interest, but not one manifestation of desire, which would be enough to make its fundamental structures explode, even at the kindergarten level. We believe in desire as in the irrational of every form of rationality, and not because it is a lack, a thirst, or an aspiration, but because it is the production of desire, desire that produces real desire, or the real in itself. Finally, we do not at all think that the revolutionary is schizophrenic or vice versa. On the contrary, we have consistently distinguished the schizophrenic as an entity from schizophrenia as a process, now the schizophrenic as entity can only be defined in relation to the arrests, the continuations in the void, or the finalist illusions that repression imposes on the process itself. This explains why we have only spoken of a schizoid pole in the libidinal investment of the social field, so as to avoid as much as possible the confusion of the schizophrenic process with the production of a schizophrenic. The schizophrenic process, the schizoid pole, is revolutionary, in the very sense that the paranoiac method is reactionary and fascist, and it is not these psychiatric categories, freed of all familialism, that will allow us to understand the politico-economic determinations, but exactly the opposite. And then, above all, we are not looking for a way out when we say that schizoanalysis as such has strictly no political program to propose. If it did have one, it would be grotesque and disquieting at the same time. It does not take itself for a party or even a group, and does not claim to be speaking for the masses. Mo political program will be elaborated within the framework of schizoanalysis. Finally, schizoanalysis is something that does not claim to be speaking for anything or anyone, not even in fact especially not for psychoanalysis, nothing more than impressions, 
the impression that things aren't going well in psychoanalysis, and that they haven't been since the start. We are still too competent, we would like to speak in the name of an absolute incompetence. Someone asked us if we had ever seen a schizophrenic no, no, we have never seen one. If someone reading this book feels that things are fine in psychoanalysis, we're not speaking for him, and for him we take back everything we have said. So what is the relationship between schizoanalysis and politics on the one hand, and between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis on the other? Everything revolves around desiring machines and the production of desire. Schizoanalysis as such does not raise the problem of the nature of the socius to come out of the revolution, it does not claim to be identical with the revolution itself. Given a socius, schizoanalysis only asks what place it reserves for desiring production, what generative role desire enjoys therein, in what forms the conciliation between the regime of desiring production and the regime of social production is brought about, since in any case it is the same production, but under two different regimes, if, on this socius as a full body, there is thus the possibility for going from one side to another, i.e., from the side where the molar aggregates of social production are organized, to this other side, no less collective, where the molecular multiplicities of desiring production are formed, whether and to what extent such associates can endure the reversal of power such that desiring production subjugates social production and yet does not destroy it, since it is the same production working under the difference in regime, if there is, and how there comes to be, a formation of subject groups, etc. If someone retorts that we are claiming the famous rights to laziness, to non-productivity, to dream and fantasy production, once again we are quite pleased, since we haven't stopped saying the opposite, and that desiring production produces the real, and that desire has little to do with fantasy and dream. As opposed to Reich, schizoanalysis makes no distinction in nature between political economy and libidinal economy. Schizoanalysis merely asks what are the machinic, social, and technical indices on associates that open to desiring machines, that enter into the parts, wheels, and motors of these machines, as much as they cause them to enter into their own parts, wheels, and motors. Everyone knows that a schizo is a machine, all schizos say this, and not just little Joey. The question to be asked is whether schizophrenics are the living machines of a dead labor, which are then contrasted to the dead machines of living labor as organized in capitalism. Or whether instead desiring, technical, and social machines join together in a process of schizophrenic production that thereafter has no more schizophrenics to produce. In her Lettre Auxiliary Ministres, Maud Manani writes, one of these adolescents, declared unfit for studies, does admirably well in a third-level class, provided he works some in mechanics. He has a passion for mechanics. The man in the garage has been his best therapist. If we take mechanics away from him he will become schizophrenic again 52. Her intention is not to praise ergotherapy or the virtues of social adaptation. She marks the point where the social machine, the technical machine, and the desiring machine join closely together and bring their regimes into communication. She asks if our society can handle that, and what it is worth if it can't. And this is indeed the direction the social, technical, scientific, and artistic machines take when they are revolutionary, they form desiring machines for which they are already the index in their own regime, 
at the same time that the desiring machines form them in the regime that is theirs, and as a position of desire. What, finally, is the opposition between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis, when the negative and positive tasks of schizoanalysis are taken as a whole? We constantly contrasted two sorts of unconscious or two interpretations of the unconscious, the one schizoanalytic, the other psychoanalytic, the one schizophrenic, the other neurotic edible, the one abstract and non-figurative, the other imaginary, but also the one really concrete, the other symbolic, the one machinic, the other structural, the one molecular, microphysical and micrological, and the other molar or statistical, the one material, the other ideological, the one productive, the other expressive. We have seen how the negative task of schizoanalysis must be violent, brutal, defamiliarizing, deedipalizing, decastrating, undoing theater, dream and fantasy, decoding, deterritorializing a terrible curatage, a malevolent activity. But everything happens at the same time. For at the same time the process is liberated the process of desiring production, following its molecular lines of escape that already define the mechanics task of the schizoanalyst. And the lines of escape are still full molar or social investments at grips with the whole social field, so that the task of schizoanalysis is ultimately that of discovering for every case the nature of the libidinal investments of the social field, their possible internal conflicts, their relationships with the preconscious investments of the same field, their possible conflicts with these in short, the entire interplay of the desiring machines and the repression of desire. Completing the process and not arresting it, not making it turn about in the void, not assigning it a goal. We'll never go too far with the deterritorialization, the decoding of flows. For the new earth, in truth, the earth will one day become a place of healing, is not to be found in the neurotic or perverse re-territorializations that arrest the process or assign it goals, it is no more behind than ahead, it coincides with the completion of the process of desiring production, this process that is always and already complete as it proceeds, and as long as it proceeds. It therefore remains for us to see how, effectively, simultaneously, these various tasks of schizoanalysis proceed. It is also within the perspective of marginal phenomena that the problem, nevertheless fundamental, of the communication of unconsciouses was posed, first by Spinoza in letter 17 to Balling, then by Myers, James, Bergson, etc.